I just wanted to answer a couple questions from last week. Um, there was one question asked about the difference between the burnt offering and the sin offering. And the difference between the two was that the sin offering was offered for the sins committed in ignorance. So things that they didn't know that they had done or things they didn't realize were sins, that, that, that was, um, they were still held responsible for those sins and they had to make atonement for those sins too. So that was the sin offering. So I just wanted to answer that. And then Tallulah asked last week about the year of Jubilee. So, and I didn't go into very much detail about that. So just to explain that a little bit further. Um, the, there was first the sabbatical year. And that was um, uh, the requirements for the sabbatical year was that that was a year of rest for the land. Uh, there was no plowing, no sowing, uh, no tending to the grapevines or olive trees. And the Lord promised that there would be a bountiful harvest in the sixth year so that it could be stored up for that seventh year. So every seventh year was a Sabbath year for the land. And then any crops that sprang up on their own that year were to be used by anyone in the community. Any produce that grew on its own that year could be eaten in season but not stored because that would be reaping, which was harvesting to store, and that was forbidden. Um, all debts were released. We uh, mentioned about the debts, but they weren't completely wiped out. They were just suspended because no one could sow that year, so you, weren't, you didn't have to make payments for that one year, but then um, you had to resume after that. And, but foreign debtors were not released because they could still farm their lands. And the law of the Lord was to be read aloud during the Feast of Tabernacles. So that was during the sabbatical year. And then every seven sabbatical years, so every seven sevens, so that was every 50 years, so that's 49 years, then the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And on that year, you would blow the shofar, which was the ram's horn, on Yom Kippur to announce that the Jubilee year had commenced. All the hired workers were to be set free, even if they had not completed their term of service, and then all land was to return to its original owner. So the purpose of the year of Jubilee was to prevent oppression in Israel, and that was in Leviticus 25. Um, the Israelite could hire himself into service to retire a debt, but he couldn't sell himself forever into slavery because God alone owned Israel and God alone could deliver Israel. So an Israelite could lease his land, but he couldn't sell his tribal inheritance because God owned the land. So all of this was pointing to be fulfilled in the end times because in the end, the oppression of Israel will end. The ownership of Israel will be restored all when Jesus returns. So again, everything is pointing to Jesus. So those are just the high points um, of the year of Jubilee. So does that answer the question? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, the foreigners weren't held to the same to the same laws. have to do more research on that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I can answer that for you next week <laughs> or the week after next when I'm back. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so let's move on to the book of Numbers. Did you ever wonder why it's called the book of Numbers? 
Um, the reason is, um, in Hebrew, it was actually called in the wilderness, because that's really what they're doing, is they're wandering through the wilderness. Um, that the Greek, in the Greek, um, it comes from arithmoi, uh, which is numbers, and it refers to the two times that a census was taken, which happened in chapter 1 and in chapter 26. So in Numbers, um, the storyline continues that started in Genesis, then continued in Exodus um, of the story of the Israelites. And then there was that break in Leviticus while the people received some additional instruction at Mount Sinai over the course of that month. But now they're going to begin their march into the promised land. But things do not go smoothly. And Numbers is actually kind of a sad and tragic story because this whole camping trip turned into a whole generation dying in the desert due to willful and repeated rebellion and then 40 years of wandering. But it was a hopeful story, or it is a hopeful story, because God does not abandon his plan. So the story begins at Mount Sinai. Then the people travel just north to Kadesh Barnea, which is an oasis, and then they travel around for 40 years in the desert before heading north to Moab, which is right at the edge of the Promised Land. So you can divide this book into three parts. Part one is in chapters 1 through 12, and that covers the first generation. Uh, this group travels from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, where the Lord is preparing them for battle to enter and take possession of the promised land. And this is when the first census is taken to determine the number of men, 20 and older, who are able to go to war. So in this portion, we see God preparing his people for, for the fulfillment of his promises. Then in part two, chapters 13 through 19, it's all about the rebellion of Israel. And this is when the people are wandering in the desert for 40 years and the first generation dies. And this is God punishing his people for their lack of trust in the promises being fulfilled. Then in part three from chapters 20 to 36 is all about the second generation and the re-preparation of Israel to enter the promised land. So this takes the people right to the edge of the promised land from Kadesh to Moab. And this is God's patience with his people, and we note that his promises will still be fulfilled in spite of the sin of the people. So you can notice that in Numbers, this is the first time in the Old Testament since God made all of those promises to Abraham that all four promises have the possibility of coming true at the same time. So remember what the promises to Abraham were. He promised them a place or a land. He promised Abraham people numerous offspring, and you notice in the book of Numbers, they are very numerous. He promised them his presence. In the tabernacle, you see that. And he promised that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, and those who cursed him, would, God would curse. So they're coming into the promised land. The people of God would have a place where they can enjoy his presence and be a blessing to the nations. And redemption is still a long way off through the Messiah. And even all of us here, we're waiting for the final fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth, where all of God's people from all of the nations will again dwell in a peaceful land of rest in fellowship with God and with each other. So there's layers of fulfillment to all of these promises along the way. So this is one of those layers to be fulfilled. But there's problems, and those problem here, the problem here is the distrust and the disobedience and rebellion of the people. But God remembers his promises to Abraham. And remember that God was the only one who passed through the cut pieces. So that means that God was the only one who took responsibility for keeping the covenant. So the theme of Numbers is that past promises will prevail in spite of present problems. So 
Let's look at the book of Numbers. So from chapters 1 through 10, the people are still at Mount Sinai. This is the portion where God is preparing them. And he does this first by taking a census of the people, tribe by tribe, to see how many men are eligible to go to war. And he counted 603,550. And this is just men over the age of 20. Yeah, so this isn't all the people. It's just the men eligible to go to war, 20 and older. So that's a lot of people. He's also preparing them by teaching them about purity. He insisted that the camp be pure. He insisted that their marriages be pure. He gave them rules also for those who wanted to live by an even higher standard of purity and separation, and those were known as the Nazarites. Now, this is not the Nazarenes, but the Nazarites. And they functioned as a sign that God had set the nation apart. And then he showed them how he wanted the camp to be set up. So it was very specific. Each tribe had a specific place to be in the camp. There were 8,580 priests, and this was good because they had a lot of responsibility offering the daily sacrifices and caring for everything in the tabernacle every day. So God was preparing them spiritually through the priests. The tabernacle was located right in the center of the camp, so the people were always reminded that Yahweh was dwelling right with them in the center of their midst. So he was also preparing them with his presence. And then chapters 9 and 10 in particular center on God's presence with his people. The first half of chapter 9 goes over the Passover celebration in the wilderness. And in the second half of chapter 9, God promises that he'll provide a cloud to lead the travelers and to remind them of, their, of his continual presence. And then at night, the pillar of fire that rested over the tabernacle and then during the day, um, the cloud. So if you look at Numbers chapter 9, let's look at 9 uh, verse... 15. Okay, chapter 9, verse 15. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. So he, um, he used the cloud as his and, the, and the pillar of fire to guide them and uh, to lead them. Uh, at all times, so they knew he was with them. So think about how God has prepared you. He prepares us for everything that he takes us through. He's also prepared us to receive salvation. So think about the things that he did in your life that are just unique to you alone. And then there's things that are unique just to us in America. You know, we have the word. We have churches everywhere. We have witnesses everywhere. We, uh, we have his creation. Of course, that's not unique just to America. Um, he's prepared us with a conscience. So there's so many ways that we've been specifically prepared to receive him as Savior. So moving on, um, in chapters 11 through 16, the people did not trust God in spite of everything that he'd done to prepare them. So first they were led to Kadesh Barnea. This is north of Mount Sinai. So here's the map. And you have this in your handouts, too. So they were just going north. 
from where they were at Mount Sinai. And this is the tragic part of uh, the book. The people showed their lack of trust in God by constantly complaining. They complained about their hardships. They complained about the food. And even Miriam and Aaron complained about Moses' authority. And even still, God was giving them quail to eat. He underscored the authority of Moses, and still they didn't trust God. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 27. He got a group of scouts together to go into the promised land just to scout it out. And he wasn't saying go in and decide whether or not we should take the promised land. He said just go in and scout it out. So they went in, and then they came back to give their report. So look in chapter 9, or I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 27. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And that's where they should have stopped, right there. <laughs> but they kept going. And as leaders, instead of encouraging the people, they led them right into fear and rebellion. They said, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. And then Caleb tried to say, well, wait a minute. Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Enoch come from the Nephilim. And this is a reference back to in Genesis. Um, this was a group that um, they were called, known as the mighty men of old, men of renown, um, giants. And the spies are probably using this as an exaggeration to say that they're like, giant, like the giant men of old. That's how big these people are. <laughs> Not that they were literally um, this specific group. Um, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, we look, and we look the same to them. So that was the end of it. No, not, Caleb could no longer convince them that they could actually take the land. The people were now afraid, and so the result uh, was that God punished them. So look at chapter 14, verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them, and then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. So God was saying he just wanted to start over again with Moses and forget about these people. <laughs> But Moses, again, interceded for the people and said uh, to the Lord, then the, then the Egyptians will hear about it, and by your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert. So Moses appealed to him, 
uh, on the basis of his glory and fame, and, and God, um, so God forgave them, uh, but with consequences. So if you look at chap, uh, the same chapter, um, verse 21, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask, but nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went into, and his descendants will inherit it. So, do you think it was harsh that... God did not allow them to enter the promised land. Uh, if you think about um, what the promised land represents, the promised land represents heaven. And Adam and Eve were cast out of heaven because of sin. And, so, and God cannot have sin in heaven. So for him to allow them to enter the promised land when they were so sinful and had rebelled so much against him would, would, not, would not work. Uh, because of the, the fact that the promised land is a foreshadowing of heaven. And physical death is a picture of the spiritual death that results from sin. And the separation that we have between us and God is due to our sin. And that's the one thing that all human beings have in common. And we all deserve death due to our sin. Sin is a serious thing because it results in separation from God. And the Israelites were trifling with God. And they needed to see the seriousness of what they had done. But we do the same thing. As if God doesn't see what we do, as if God doesn't see our hearts, we do the same thing. So we've all joined together in a vast rebellion against God. Every single human being has been tempted by sin and has succumbed except for one. One who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And he is the one that we look to, and he's the one in whom we have our hope. So one other thing to point out about their sin of complaining is the connection between dissatisfaction and sin. First the people complained, then they sinned. The complaining first revealed their spiritual state. So God had them in the desert where they were not asked to work, and still he fed them. He gave them a humble and a faithful leader, and they complained about him. They weren't satisfied with God or anything he'd provided, so they grumbled about all the things that they didn't have. So isn't that like us? Dissatisfaction is the root of sin, and it tells us more about our souls than about our circumstances. It indicates that our souls are feeding at all the wrong places. And once we, um, once we complain about God's provision, sinning against his will is just a short step away. So every time we sin, we're sending this message to God. I don't like you, and I'd rather have these other things than you. They give me what I really want. So that's a lot to think about, <laughs> what we're really saying. Um, did you know that Moses was the only one recorded in the Bible who asked to see God's glory? Uh, that was interesting to me. And I wondered if more people had asked to see his glory, if God would have showed his glory to more people in the Bible. So do you ever feel afraid to ask to see God's glory? Um, Beth Moore taught about this, um, about God's glory and about his presence. Um, and I put that link on the Women's Ministry Facebook page, so I would really encourage you to, to listen to that. It's really uh, worthwhile 
um, teaching. But turn to Exodus 33. So this is a little bit of a flashback from our Exodus time. Um, and look at verse 18, 18 and 19. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I thought, isn't that interesting? And Beth Moore pointed this out, that he, he used glory and goodness synonymously. He said, show me your glory. I'll let my goodness pass in front of you. So his glory and his goodness are one and the same. And the enemy's been trying to make us think that God's not good right from the very beginning. Um, our Sunday school class has been listening to Paul David Tripp teach about sanctification, and this week he shared a really great analogy. He said, suppose your family is going to go to Disney World for vacation, and so for the whole year you talk about the great wonders of Disney World, and you build up this excitement, and you're saving your money, and you're thinking how wonderful it's going to be, and then finally the day comes and everybody pals in the car, and you start the long drive to Disney World. And all the way, you're talking about how wonderful Disney's going to be, and you just can't wait to get there. And then you're in Florida, and you see a sign, and it says, 120 miles to Disney, and everyone's so excited. And your dad pulls the car over and stops and says, here's where we're having our vacation. <laughs> and that's what we do in our lives all the time. We stop short of God's glory. We, don't, we are satisfied with things that fall short of God. We're satisfied with things on earth rather than the things of God, that God is the only one that's going to satisfy us, that he is Disney, but we're happy with, or we think we're happy with, well, um, the husband, or we want the perfect children, or the money, or whatever it is, whatever earthly thing that's here, we're stopping 120 miles from Disney. So I thought that was really powerful. Don't, we, we don't want it all. Why don't we want it all? We want real satisfaction and living water, so we'll never be thirsty and never be hungry again. So anyways, just a little, some thoughts about God's glory and um, how we fall short, how we stop short. But, okay, so if we stop there, numbers would really be nothing but a tragedy. But the third part of numbers from 17 to 36 show that God perseveres with his people. And in chapter 20, Moses proved that even he was not immune from dishonoring the Lord. And in a fit of anger, he disobeyed God's instructions for how to get water from the rock. And he struck it with his uh, staff instead of speaking to it the way that God told him to do. And so if you look at chapter 20, verse 8. Take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out 
and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. So God promises him that he will share in the sentence handed down to that first generation, and he would not enter the promised land. Then in chapter 21, the people grumbled against Moses and against God again. So God sent a venomous plague of, plague of venomous snakes. But look at chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So God had sent a way of salvation from the snakes. Now look at John chapter 8. Verse 28. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, and speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So talking about Jesus being lifted up. But look at John chapter 3, verse 14. And this is probably more clear. Verse 14 in chapter 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's Jesus in numbers. Um, Jesus was lifted up just as um, the snake was lifted up and we look to him and are saved from our sin, just as the Israelites were saved from the venomous snakes. So then in chapter 25, um, the Israelite men indulged in sexual immorality with the Moabite women and in idolatry, and the Lord addressed this with a plague in which 24,000 of them died. And that ended the first generation, which brought the 40 years of wandering to a close. So... Now comes the second chance. So in chapter 26, they took a second census. This is the next generation and to see who could fight in battle. And they had approximately the same number this time, 601,730. 
uh, men over the age of 20 who could fight in battle. And then in chapter 27, Joshua was chosen as Moses' successor for the new generation to take them into the promised land. In Numbers, they don't actually go into the promised land. That's going to happen in the book of Joshua. So they're still right at the edge of the promised land. Um, chapter 31 described a victory over the Midianites. In chapter 34, God gave the people instructions for assigning land to the Israelite tribes in Canaan. In chapter 35, he instructed them to set aside special cities for certain purposes. In chapter 36, he made special promises for, or provision for how the land would remain within each tribe. So he's preparing them and getting them ready. Um, so even though they didn't actually enter the promised land, they're right at its doorstep, and we see that God's plans have not changed. And even as early as chapter 15 in Numbers, um, God was saying, when you enter the promised land. So his, he knew all along, as he always did right from the very beginning, um, what his plans were, that nothing has altered that. It's sort of like, okay, so as I was saying, let's get back to what we were doing. So he's the mighty and holy one who prepares his people. He punishes and the rebellion and the sin, but he perseveres in mercy and justice. And God's mercy is much greater than man's mercy. There's a place in the New Testament that Numbers comes up. If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I never really paid much attention to what came before that verse. I always looked at that verse by itself about no temptation has seized you, but never really focused on that whole story. That covers the whole story, doesn't it? But that's so cool. So, I've been learning a lot. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, so, this is an example to us. Um, don't grumble and complain. If you find that you're in a season of discontent, confess that honestly to the Lord. He already knows how you feel. And look to the cross for healing. Just as the Israelites looked at the snake on the pole, we look to Christ. He is our hope. So, meditate on his love, his character, his sacrifice, Take your eyes off your circumstances and keep them on Christ. Just as Dean preached this Sunday from Second Chronicles, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then in your own battle, you go forward praising God because the choir's out in front, because God inhabits the praises of his people, and we need him with us. So let's pray.
Father, just as Moses lifted the snake up in the desert, I pray that our eyes will be on Jesus. Help us, Lord, to seek your face and not your hands, to get to know the giver and not the gifts. And I pray that we will see your glory among us. I ask that revival will come to each of our hearts. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.